Hi there, all. Welcome back to the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. I'm David Leach, a professor in the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria. And I'm Deborah Campbell. I'm also a professor of uh, creative nonfiction in the Department of Writing. Well, welcome back, Deborah. It's been a bit of a hiatus. We've, we've been busy with uh, teaching. Students are working away on their, their writing projects and may be thinking about the question of fact-checking and verifying their information. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you uh, about the, the very tricky business of establishing truth in creative nonfiction, literary journalism, and all the various forms of non fiction. So um, maybe I'll kind of just open it up with you. What's your, uh, what's your experience of fact checking both as a fact checker, maybe first, and a fact check key? Mm -hmm. Well, this is, a, this is a good question because actually my very first magazine job, uh, unpaid I should add, as an intern, uh, was an internship at Vancouver Magazine, and I was asked to fact check uh, articles in the magazine. And this was my first experience of this whole world of verifying truth. So what, what happened was I was handed the article and given a highlighter and a pen. And with a highlighter, I would highlight every sentence and look is there a fact here? Do they have a quote? Uh, if so, was that an accurate version of the quote? Um, where did they get it? Um, can you contact that person and make sure they said that? Or do we have tape? Um, is there a statistic? Where did they get it? Is that a reliable source? And every time I would verify a fact or say the spelling of something, I think the article was full of um, uh, technical uh, words. I can't remember medical or scientific words. And so I would have to make sure they were spelled properly, that they meant what the author thought they meant. And then as soon as I had uh, verified it, I would cross it out with a pen and then move on to the next line. And it, it, what, it what it was really useful for was realizing um, how, as writers, we need to keep track of our sources. Um, and that uh, we, it, how, how valuable it is to have an outside set of eyes on our, on our facts, but also it made me really vigilant as a writer because I thought, oh, well, somebody could be asking, you know, where did you get this information? How can you say that? Who says? Uh, and uh, it really started me thinking about, about uh, how that whole process works. And of course, I've been fact-checked many times because as you know, David, from working in the magazine world, um, quite a few magazines and especially the higher volume magazines have fact-checkers either on staff or at in they, they hand it off to interns who will go through a story line by line. And it really makes you, I think, uh, diligent and is all, I mean, another really good uh, reason that they do it is to keep you honest, right? To, to ensure that you are not making things up. I mean, we talk about creative nonfiction, but we don't want to be creative in the facts. And, you know, there's sometimes, I don't know, you, you probably hear in class, you know, what is truth? And how can you, and I, I think about, well, okay, there's, there's um, subjectivity, of course, in interpretation, but did something happen or not? Was it 
said by the person you say said it or not. Uh, so there are a lot of things that can be verified and documented, and those are what I think of as facts. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, I could say a lot more about that. I certainly have had some good and bad experiences with uh, fact-checking or fact-checkers, um, but um, maybe I'll just ask you, you've worked as an editor, a magazine editor, and what do you see as the value of fact-checking or fact-checkers? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, one, it just establishes the authority of the publication, and it's interesting, and I don't think a lot of people know this, that it really varies from uh, publication to publication, but even the, the types of publication. As you say, it's it's kind of a really been embedded in the magazine industry, though as the industry has shifted and, and come under kind of economic threats, I imagine some of that has, has dropped away or they put the fact-checking more on the copy editors or even on the, the writers or editors uh, themselves, whereas a newspaper is just grinding out so much uh, copy and stories that they, they, uh, they don't necessarily have time for the fact-checking and just publish corrections after. I was always shocked, I, I think, with uh, my first... Um, books that oh the book isn't necessarily going to be fact checked yeah, it'll get a, a it'll get a copy edit and and the uh, the uh, copy editor might catch some things but they're not going to have that kind of scrupulous process that you described in which uh, one person uh, has often been trained and assigned to kind of go line by line and really interrogate the the factuality of of uh, any uh, statement in there and, and so. In my my second book, I actually hired um, a UVic student uh, to uh, to go through it and and fact check my uh, book, which again took weeks, if not uh, months, um, but really um, gave me confidence. Uh, particularly when you're writing about a controversial issue. I mean, you've, you we wrote about the same uh, in many ways the same kind of topics, uh, the Middle East kind of politics and, and culture. And there, you get something wrong, somebody's going to point it out. Uh, and one little one little mistake uh, people will uh, that people will catch they'll um, lose confidence and think oh well maybe this is rife with errors as well and just on the flip Absolutely. side of it I, uh, uh, one little mistake uh, even seemingly small uh, I'll remember that far more than than the rest of a, a story and I, it will kind of remove all joy from from uh, seeing that that story for me knowing that that I uh, um, I'll let such an error get through. But you raised an interesting kind of question uh, as well. So you, you've got these um, verifiable facts. Did something happen on such and such a day, uh, which you can usually verify? But what about things like quotes? Somebody said something uh, either to you or to the, the um, writer that you're uh, fact-checking. How do you go about fact-checking a quote? Because I know there's a lot of, kind of discussion around this. Do you read the quote back to the original person? Well, in that case, they often want to, to rewrite it or even mm -hmm. uh, deny it. Or how do, uh, how do you, how do you uh, verify what someone said? Right. Um... And, and I, 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 I think that this is a, a good argument for recording your interviews, mm -hmm. first of all. Um, I'll just give an example of, a, of a, 
story that I did that was really heavily fact-checked. Um, and uh, this was a story I did for the Walrus magazine. It was about the broadcaster Al Jazeera. And I think I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I spent about six weeks in Qatar, uh, which is the headquarters of Al Jazeera. I interviewed, oh, probably 30 people. Um, I didn't tape all my interviews because some of them were just, you know, sitting with someone in a restaurant, having a chat. And some were, some were very, you know, long interviews with the principal characters that I knew would be there. And those I always taped. I recorded them and I'm really glad I did because um, first the walrus uh, wanted both my transcripts and my tapes. So the transcripts were useful so they could quickly figure out where in the tape, you know, when I have three hours of recording, it, they, I don't want to put anyone through having to listen to that. Um, they would know, oh, it's at, you know, one hour, 37 minutes. And then they would go and listen to it and make sure that, 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 the, that the person had said what I said they said. Um, so the fact checker would actually go back and re-listen to your tapes? Yes. That's impressive. Yes, they did. And that story was reprinted by Reader's Digest in Canada and Reader's Digest Croatia. And they asked for my tapes as well. And they too went through it line by line. And then it was reprinted by Utney, uh, Utney Reader, which, which compiles, you know, magazine articles. Uh, from around the world and they also asked for my tapes so I was so glad that I hadn't just taken hand notes that I had actually taped because I mean I've also been fact-checked where I've had to show my hand notes if I've if I've um, so if I've spent say months immersed in an area I'm not necessarily going to tape everything because it would just be a complete nightmare and it's also I'm just sort of catching certain dialogue on the fly then they want uh, photocopies of my uh, of my notes to look at. But of course, you know, there's always the possibility that I could have just written down what I would have liked somebody to say. And that's the, you know, if there was a really suspicious fact checker, that could be an issue. Or if there was something really controversial about what was said, that could be an issue. But um, fortunately for this story, I had all the tapes. But the actually, the fact that it was gone through three times, I, I was impressed that each of these places um, went through that. So, you know, recording your interviews, I would say anything, anything that's complicated um, and anything that's controversial, always tape. Um, it's just so useful. I have sometimes taped while also um transcribing on the fly like actually typing <laughs> while i'm if i'm in a say a three-hour interview and it's really a lot and uh sometimes i've done that but generally um yeah just having the tape is is what uh fact checkers want and it and it and it uh, keeps you honest you know so you don't i think we easily change quotes in our head um, when we're taking hand notes. So there's also, and also when you're, when you're taping, you can be paying attention to everything else in the room uh, and also to the person that you're, that you're interviewing. So um, yeah, so that's been, that's been m my experience uh, with that. 
And what do you, uh, what, how do you think um, technology in, in, in particular, the, the internet has uh, changed how we approach both kind of fact uh, checking and our, our thinking about factuality? I mean, I always think of like uh, a magazine like the New Yorker, which was famous for its fact checking, but would have had to do it with somebody sitting on the phone at a desk or running off to the a public library and going through a card catalog. Now we can kind of jump on the internet and, and, and uh, do a certain level of of uh, fact-checking so uh, quickly, yet at the same time, as we know, uh, you can also find wrong facts anywhere you yes. look on the internet as, as well. So there's this danger of, of confirmation bias. So I'll just kind of type in that date. Oh, yeah, there it is. It's, it's one of the first uh, things that comes up on my Google search. It must be uh, right in terms of the, uh, using the internet uh, as a fact-checking tool do you have any tips on on um how writers who uh, honestly most of uh, most writers these days are probably forced to fact check themselves uh, you should be so lucky to be writing for the new yorker and having them pay somebody to fact check so that kind of uh, falls back on you how do you how do you do it without getting caught in the many many alternative facts that the uh, internet contains oh yes and more than ever right um and I also appreciated that you mentioned that newspapers don't fact check. Uh, and so, you know, magazines fact check and you wouldn't think it, you, you, but you, newspapers don't and books don't, even though books are perhaps the most authoritative. So I even, when I read something in the newspaper, I always want to fact check what I read in the newspaper um, and make sure that they're not repeating something that's wrong and that I, I then don't end up feeding into something that's incorrect. Um, but yes, you know the the one of the one of the phrases that I that, that I like is uh, somebody's being wrong on the internet, uh, and you know that is uh, more common than ever, right? We're seeing a lot of um, well errors, but also inventions happening, and people tend to go to what is highest up on their Google search, and they they go with that. And uh, I, I'll give you a, an experience that's a kind of a cautionary tale. And while I really appreciate fact checkers, a lot of them are interns like me when, my, when I had my first job and they don't necessarily know the field that you as the writer are writing about. And so what they will do often is exactly as you described, David, they will uh, plunk something into Google and then they'll uh, fact check your piece of writing with whatever comes up first. And I had an experience where a story that I wrote uh, was fact-checked and the story was about, <clears throat> was about Dubai. And um, I'd spent a lot of time there and I had, um, uh, I know the Middle East quite well. And so the fact-checker, I didn't get to see the copy after it was fact-checked and before it went to print. And the fact-checker introduced four mistakes oh, no. by uh, fact-checking something and going, oh, she got that wrong and, and uh, quote-unquote correcting it, not knowing, as I did, that what they introduced was wrong. Uh, one was a mistake about um, an Islamic holiday, um, because there are two Islamic holidays that are both called Eid, but mm. they are different ones, and they got that 
wrong. And an another was a mistake of geography because they must have looked at something that got the geography wrong and a couple were a fact. And I, I still think about that with uh, a sense of um, uh, despair and shame because <laughs> that article is out there with four mistakes in it and I didn't put them there. So that also uh, made me much more aware of needing to document where my facts are. And often I'll have a fact checking file that I will send off with exactly where they should look. And also, I, I always want to see it after they've fact checked. Um, you also mentioned, you know, going over quotes with someone. And uh, uh, so sometimes your quotes are verifiable through tape, but some of them, um, uh, the fact checker will actually call up the person. And just as you suggested, they will uh, say, oh, I didn't say that, or don't quote me on that. And um, I had this experience a number of times writing for an art magazine where they would fact check with the artist and the artists liked to sound really intellectual, rather like um, an academic uh, paper. And they didn't like sounding like a human being because I don't know, it was, I mean, the art world's pretty snobbish at times. And um, so after a while, I would see these really dull, bland quotes put into my article that were not what that very, actually very interesting person had said. And so I, I started saying to the fact checker, okay, send me the article once you fact checked it. And then I would read it and go, ah, okay, they did it again. And then I would call up the person, the artist and say, hey, I'm gonna read you two quotes. One is the one that you gave to the fact checker and one is the one that you said to me and I'll say which one is more interesting <laughs> and they would always go oh actually yeah you're right okay yes um, so this is a this is an example of a magazine that would sort of lean heavily on um, you know presenting the artist the way, the way they like to be presented, but I would actually have to make sure that the artist assumed that we don't want to read someone who sounds like a, like a boring text book. That's a good approach. It adds more work to use uh, author. The other tip I heard is, I mean, the fact checkers shouldn't be reading back the verbatim quotes, but kind of maybe paraphrasing. And is this, did you say something like uh, this? And okay, yeah, no, that sounds uh, right. So you haven't kind of got, misconstrued their opinion in some way, but they're not about to try and rewrite the, the, the syntax and diction of their actual quote, which as you say, will end up feeling uh, like it's been written by a non-writer rather than said by an actual human. And that's what we come to creative nonfiction for, that human voice, both the author's human voice, but the, the, the human uh, voice of, of um, the sources and these uh, other people that need to come alive on on the page though and that kind of ties in maybe one last question particularly or not one last question but about um uh, using quotes uh we always clean them up a little bit right i mean yeah. if you listen to your tape uh if you well if you listen to this podcast you'll hear my i knows and my ums and my circling back and forth and we rarely include uh, verbatim transcripts of how people speak so there's a certain amount of cleaning up 
uh, when does you when do you cross that line of of cleaning up too much that it becomes an actual um, error in in fact or in presentation? Do you have kind of yeah. strategies around that? Does it depend on yeah. genre or publication? I always feel like talking about this with new writers is like giving them the nuclear button, right? <laughs> the, don't you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, there's so much power to changing someone's words and we're, we're entrusted with those words. And this doesn't, it doesn't really matter whether we like someone or not. We're entrusted with those words and we need to uh, maintain their integrity the integrity of what they said. So, you know, even if we had a transcription of this podcast, it would, there would be digressions. We would make half a sentence and then stop and say, oh, wait, let me tell you this first. And then we would finish the sentence and, or finish the thought. Uh, and so it doesn't actually work on the page in the same way that it does in person. And so the reader can't be made to slog through all that. So I, I don't change things except to make them clearer on the page. I think there's a kind of a master class in this. If you read um, Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer, yes. which is a classic book on, uh, on the journalist subject relationship, but in the, in the afterward, she gives you examples of how, an example of how she edits quotes for clarity. Cause she's a, one of those writers that will often quote someone for two pages, which I've never done. And most people can't pull off, um, but she'll quote them writ long and she makes it gripping. And then she showed uh, in the, in the afterward, how, how, the, the the speaker went in and out of the idea that they were discussing and jumped around and how she put it together and didn't change anything, but made it so that as a linear reader reading from the beginning of a, of a paragraph to the end of it, they could follow it clearly. And that's a, that's something that comes with practice. I, I advise students to yes, clean up the filler language um, and clean up their grammar mistakes um, or where they're making errors that are clear to someone in person, but on the page, just make them look confusing or confused or stupid. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, if you want someone to have filler language or if you want someone to sound a certain way, fine. But um, we, we do that favor to people we um we quote. Yeah, and you have um, to recognize if you're leaving in that in what is the effect and what is the purpose, because sometimes it is, it can we use it to make people look less intelligent if we're cleaning it up for other people uh, as well. So there's a, a flip side to that. Are you, right. so, uh, I, we, we've mostly been uh, talking around fact-checking, I think, in forms of literary journalism, thinking about pieces that um, would appear in a magazine. What about as we move into things like the personal essay or the the memoir, those, those realms of the quote-unquote emotional uh, truths? I was uh, talking yeah. in one of my classes about um, uh, David Carr's, uh, uh, it's, the original essay was Me and My Girls, but it became uh, his book, The Knife, or 
or the night of the gun uh which explores his his memories of of being um uh, a coke addict and uh a father of two uh young girls uh but he goes back and fact checks his his uh memories and uh, interviews um of people who knew him at the time uh and even looks uh for for documents uh to try and establish uh dates around his memory and he quickly discovers that his memories don't necessarily jibe uh with with other um uh people's memories i mean do all memoirists also need to to fact check their memory what about the whole vagaries of memory or when you're or you're fact checking somebody uh, somebody else's uh, memories of a, a situation don't 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 mm-hmm. uh, facts become a bit quicksilver and slippery uh, at, at that point as we kind of slide across the spectrum into these more personal subjective subgenres of creative nonfiction. Yeah, I, I think they definitely do. Um, and you know, you brought up David Carr, and you know, if he was uh, high. Of course, the memory is less reliable, but even so, how do we remember things from when we were six years old or 16 years old or- Or 60 even, minutes ago, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's so, we lose we lose things so quickly. Uh, I do think there is a little bit of leeway for memory in that we know all the research is that we just get things wrong. Uh, memory is unreliable and I think that there's some leeway for that in the sense that um, the reader uh, knows that what hit you or your interpretation of it is what formed you as a person. And that's kind of an essential part of it. However, you know, we can do a lot of fact checking around our memories. Um, We can talk to other people who were there. We can revisit the scenes that we write about very often. Um, We can look at emails or letters uh, that might document things, photographs. Um, I think uh, that's at least uh, one way to to figure, you know, to to figure out whether something is is true to uh, the way it's portrayed. And the other um, thing, it may also conjure more memories, which is helpful for the creative process. Um, absolutely. We had, we had uh, was it Ailet uh, Sabari uh, as our Orion guest in Writing 100 the other day, and she, um, a, a fiction writer, but also a former journalist and, and memoirist in her book, The Art of Leaving, is, is a, a real like, wonderful kind of connect, uh, collection of connected essays. But yeah, she talked about uh, interviewing family members, uh, about past memories, and then say, well, okay, if they contradicted me, I have to change it. I might add it. I might uh, um, kind of add context to it. But she said it always helped or even uh, going back and checking the weather uh, uh, on a specific place on a specific day, which you can do just to add a little bit of kind of color and context as she's recreating these memories. So there, there can be an act of uh, research uh, that is like fact checking for for uh, the, the memoirist that that improves the creative uh, process, even if you're not quite interrogating it in the same way as you as you might do for like a political piece or, or a, a piece of journalism. Yeah, and I think it really that's a good example because it really um, it I think it's interesting for the reader sometimes too to see us as writers interrogate our memories because they might have a few suspicions that 
we didn't, you know, how did we remember that conversation from when we were six? Or, or as you said, you know, even 60 minutes ago. And so when we bring in another voice to say, actually, I think you got it wrong there. It, it allows us to think on the page, which is an interesting uh, part of um, the essay process. Uh, it allows us to reevaluate. I mean, a lot of writing about one's emotional experiences or personal experiences is also evaluating the meaning of it. And the meaning of personal experiences changes over time. Things that we uh, may have viewed as being really traumatic may turn out later to have been valuable in the sense that we learned certain things through them that later help us in life. But we don't realize that at the moment. And so that sort of revisiting, even revisiting it through someone else's eyes can allow a richness and texture to enter the uh the the reading experience and also give the reader a greater sense of trust that we're not just uh trusting our our fallible memory uh without you know interrogating it a little bit too yeah i i mean uh i, th I think you could do an anthology of of uh introductions to memoirs and creative nonfiction books in which the authors actually kind of set up how they're approaching the, the factuality of memory and and the research you don't have the liberty of doing that in the essay but there's lots of uh lots of uh, really interesting uh books around that uh, i mean sebastian younger does it in the perfect storm where he uses certain kinds of formatting and typography to indicate okay yeah this is like a, a verifiable fact that I could kind of hammer down. Well, this is more reconstructed from somebody's memory, and this is kind of more an act of imagining, but based on some kind of documentation as well. So there's almost kind of sediments and layers of, of uh, um, a verifiable factuality that, that can be signaled even, um, uh, whether it's the typography or, or just acknowledging the, the limits of of a memory uh, within the text uh, itself. Yes, and one of the um, creative nonfiction pieces that I give to my class is a, a short travel piece by Thomas King. And it's a, both a travel piece and also a memoir of an event that happened in his childhood. And at the very end, he talks to his mother about this event he's been writing about. And she says, oh, no, it wasn't like that at all. And she tells him in a few sentences what really happened. And it just completely changes the whole story. But it's also fascinating because part of what he's doing in the story is questioning how much we can rely on, you know, fond childhood memories uh, as well. And I think the reader, to be, to be honest, to be honest is also to admit what we don't know or can't know. And that is part of, part of fact checking I think is, is leaving that um, openness to correction. Have you um, uh, read the lifespan of a, a fact that, that kind of... Yes. <laughs> I know. Famous uh, John Degata essay. Uh, yeah, exactly. John Degata and uh, 
was it Jim? What do you Jim think Fee? of it, David? Oh, I love I love the book. Uh, I mean, I, I've taught it in one of my classes. I know uh, uh, they're doing it in in Danielle's writing three forty, at least uh, part of it as well. I threw it into um, uh, one year into my writing three three five, and and, and it, I mean it's a, a great book because it completely divides students. They they were like practically shouting at uh, uh, um, uh, each other by uh, the end of uh, class. On the one side, I had like the professional writing students and the journalists and the more nonfiction students saying this is outrageous, John Gagata, it's just a, a violation of of uh, your contract with the reader uh, to yeah. to write truthfully and not fudge uh, the facts and at least try and verify them. Uh, and then the other uh, side, I think I had a, um, a grad student who was a poet and was like, well, well, no, this, as he says, this isn't journalism. This is uh, an essay. This is a personal essay, which comes from a different tradition and has a different uh, relationship to a small t truth and factuality and has the liberty to kind of move things around to suit the, the narrative. And then there, of course, uh, in the close of the book, just how how tricky it can be to verify certain uh, facts as well. I mean, I, I try and remain as agnostic uh, as as possible while teaching it, just to to see uh, the the debates that occur. But for uh, people who haven't read it, it's it's basically um, uh, a recreation, and it's it's an artificial recreation of the act of fact checking this uh, personal essay that I think it had originally. I mean, I got to check my facts here. I think it had originally been. And it was supposed to be published in Harper's or something, That's and then right. they, they had pulled yeah. it, and then it was going to appear in the magazine, the literary journal, the the Believer, and the this editor kind of passes the assignment on to um, Jim Fingle, the fact checker. So in the and it's beautifully designed. In the center, you have the original uh, essay, and then in I believe in red ink, so like the red ink of a fact checker, you have this back and forth conversation as uh, Jim Fingle kind of. Um, uh, tries to verify certain facts and realizes that the author, John Degata, has moved some around, either knowingly or unknowingly, uh, um, to suit his narrative purposes. And they end up having this furious uh, debate about the ethics of that. And I think particularly the ethics of doing it around um, other people's lives as well, this kind of responsibility yeah. in, in terms of representing um, uh, other other people's lives. And it's, it's a kind of a wonderfully interesting um, argument that they they get in that kind of circles around this this uh, original essay that it, it involves the death of a young man by suicide in uh, Las Vegas. Yes, and I, well, I, I won't get into what I think about it here. <laughs> That's for another <laughs> three-hour podcast. <laughs> yes, and we can argue. <laughs> but you know, I have been through the Harper's fact check process, and. Uh, yeah, I can see why they wouldn't have published John DeGas' <laughs> essay. <laughs> uh, I, I think we're almost out of time, but we should uh, revisit the ethics of storytelling uh, in a future podcast. Absolutely. Uh, bonus assignment. Anybody can go back and, and fact check anything that we've said in here and, and send us a message in, in case we have to add a, add a correction. I don't know how many. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Deborah. It's a pleasure as always. And I look forward to uh, talking again. My pleasure. <laughs>